Michelle McKenzie, and welcome to the WTF Podcast, where we demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. My guest is Aiko Bethea, the founder of Rare Coaching and Consulting, where she guides leaders of Fortune 100 companies and organizations to remove barriers to inclusion. She has been recognized by Forbes as one of the top seven anti-racism educators for companies and by CultureAmp as a DEI influencer to follow. Aiko leads diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging for the Brene Brown Education and Research Group. Aiko's writing has been published in the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and the New York Times bestselling anthology, You Are the Best Thing. In this episode, we'll discuss transformational versus transactional DEI and what's the difference, how money can be used as a facade to avoid more meaningful DEI work, and what it will take to achieve racial and gender equity in the funded ecosystem. Aiko, welcome to the WTF podcast. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for inviting me. I have been talking quite a bit this season, as I mentioned, about diversity and equity and inclusion in the funding ecosystem when it comes to Black and other entrepreneurs of color being able to access funding. And I know that since 2020, there have been lots of commitments around providing greater access to funding for underrepresented founders. And I know one of the things that you talk about often is the difference between transactional and transformational DEI. Would you please break down what those things mean for the audience? so that we have a better understanding and maybe provide some examples of what falls into each category. Sure. I think uh, one of the probably easiest ways to talk about it or to differentiate the two is that when we're talking about transformational, you can only have transformational change or approach to equity when you are being introspective. That means that you're also holding yourself accountable, understanding why this is important to you. And also when you're being people-centered, which means that you're thinking about who you're impacting, why, what is it that they're even coming against? Why is the support important? When you are approaching something transactionally, you can do transactional work all day and never hold yourself accountable. Never ask yourself, okay, wait, what does this mean to me as a person? You just, an example could be, um, companies might often say, everyone needs to go through unconscious bias training. Okay, and the accountability is, wow, only, I'll say, Michelle, your team, only 20% of your team went through. Go back and finish, you know, the other 80% needs to go through. Versus if it was transformational, I would not even be thinking about necessarily, hey, a, a, a training, but I will be looking at the behaviors. What's the change that's happening? Is there a mindset change? Is there a behavior change? What's the impact? Because I understood my why. I understood that I wanted people to be included. I wanted there to be fewer aggressions, more self-awareness. So one is almost like you're counting people like widgets. You're creating more process and compliance but you're not actually changing behavior, culture, or mindset. So often with um, transactional, another way it looks like is people having dashboards that only consider counting people. How many women do we have? How many Black people do we have? How many gay people do we have? But you're actually not thinking about why are you doing that in the first place? The ecosystem, 
inclusion. So there's a misnomer that when you're uh, taking on something in a transformational way that you're not using data, you actually are, but you're using data and understanding what are you trying to figure out or uncover. You're not just counting for the sake of counting, right? And also you're using qualitative data as much as you are quantitative. So you're listening to people's experiences, their stories, their anecdotes versus just counting. So you're figuring out what's happening underneath and what's the experience that people are having. Again, going back to being people-centric and understanding impact on folks. So that's uh, those are just a few examples of how I would distinguish the two. You know, I serve as a part of a DEI council at my place of employment. And it's, it's, and it's, a, it's a volunteer position. <laughs> and it's very difficult. We're trying to get authentic engagement and where everyone feels as if it's their job and not just the job of people that look like me to do. How, what are some strategies to, to circumvent that? where it feels as if it's everyone's job to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's so many approaches. One is for people like us, who are always the ones who are impacted, for us to actually hold boundaries and to give ourselves permission to say no. I'm not going to be on the volunteer committee. I'm not going to set up the ERG. I'm not going to lead the ERG. So being able to give ourselves permission to say what was the question again? Michelle? We were talking yeah. about courageous leadership when it comes to DEI and what that looks like. Uh, so courage looks like um, being honest. It looks like leaning into tough conversations. It looks like, uh, well, if you thought about Dr. Brene Brown's work, you'd under you'd know that the way that she measures courageous leadership is by a leader's ability to be vulnerable. And what do we talk of me when we say vulnerable? their ability to wade into uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So that means being able to say, you know what, I got this wrong. That means being able to apologize in public. That means being willing to, when you realize that, wow, my answer actually, or my idea is not working to to name it and to pivot and go back around. It means being able to create space where, Certain things are okay. Tears are okay. Grieving is okay. Even sometimes being angry is okay, right? But the idea that you're not avoiding tough conversations because you don't want to show your emotions or you don't want it to get to that. Many people, it will feel like a cringy feeling of, oh my gosh, you're going to cry. Oh my gosh, I don't want to talk about this because somebody might get upset. So that's what courageous leadership looks like is being willing to wade into the deep even though you don't know what the outcome's going to be, but you know that this is the way forward versus avoiding. So let's talk about budgeting for DEI. They say <laughs> what gets budgeted gets prioritized or what's prioritized gets budgeted. And oftentimes we find that there isn't a budget for this work or there is minimal budget for this work and it requires a lot of gymnastics 
to get things done. What are your thoughts on that? So I think partly my thoughts around uh, diversity, equity, inclusion work is that it is just a part of, it's a output of leadership competence. It's not something separate and segregated. I think it is something that if you are building leaders, your leaders are going to have the skills to be able to create and nurture diverse, equitable, and inclusive places and spaces. And so if you're not going, are you not going to invest in your leaders? Are you not going to invest in people's professional responsibility or professional development? So I think that the budgeting, I mean, if you're not going to actually invest in all of these things, then what's important to you? You know, are your leaders important? Is the culture important? Oftentimes, I do take issue with budgeting for DEI because it's usually that you're just budgeting for an event, right? Oh, we're going to celebrate Black History Month. Can we afford that speaker? Oh, we're going to do unconscious bias training versus thinking about what's the output and what's the change we need. If I'm going to measure what the win is for diversity, equity, inclusion, I'm going to be looking at performance management and asking my leaders and having 360s and understanding, does their, uh, do their direct reports feel that they can express an opinion of dissent? So I'm going to be always looking at behaviors and whatever it takes to create the behavior shift. That's what we need to budget for. But you know what we really, even beyond saying just dollars and cents, it's actually creating space for conversations, space for being able to ask the leader, you know, why is this coming up in your team? Why do you have a lower retention rate of, for women? Why is this happening? But usually we don't budget for the time, Michelle, the time to have that conversation, to circle back to have accountability and to figure out what do you need? What kind of support do you need leader X in order for us to get this together for us not to hear these stories about how you yell at such and such, or you make these X, Y, and Z statements. So I will tell you that yes, budgeting because people pay attention to what's on the um, finance, uh, what, what is actually in the budget, but money oftentimes in organizations are proxy for importance it's a proxy for power. And that may be why it can show up in this way. But sometimes the work of DEI doesn't require expense in that way, but it does require expense in terms of accountability and time. And we find out, wow, these people can't actually, the reason why people are falling is because they actually need these skills. So then it should look like learning and development budget. It should look like an expectation that you're going to these courses and therefore these are going to be the changes you get. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that budget shows up in different ways, but not just seeing it on the line item, except for the fact that many people see it as a proxy for power and importance. What's really happening? I'm speaking with Aiko Bethea, recognized by Forbes as one of the top seven anti-racism educators a DEIA influencer. She's an author and senior equity consultant for the Brene Brown Education and Research Group about bringing transformational DEI to the funding ecosystem. Yeah, and how we label certain data. Like 
talk about women. Oh, women in general. But once you start to disaggregate that data, then you see a lot of inequality among women. Women is a broad category. We're not all the same. And and there are women who have, you know, the intersectionality of race and gender going against them. And so there has to be space to understand their unique and specific realities versus other women. That's right. right? That's right. How do you account for that? That is that data disaggregation. Absolutely. I think amongst men as well, because people think A, B, or C, and then they realize, wait, but all the Black men actually said this. But you're absolutely right. So the disaggregating data is just critical for some organizations like a, um, a funder, like a foundation, somebody who might be in philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Uh, for them, it's important to also understand what's the experience of their grantees, because the grantees can end up really sharing information. Like I feel, you know, I'm constantly being spoken down to. I'm constantly diminished. They don't understand our work and don't want to come into the community. That tells you a lot right there too. And imagine if this is happening with the externally, when you have external data, then it is pretty much majority of the time an indication of what's happening within the organization. Folks don't just switch their behavior externally it's happening inside as well or you can have the case because we 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 know that post george floyd lots of organizations made commitments and were allocating lots of money to underrepresented groups underrepresented founders uh black funds and things of that nature is there is sometimes throwing money at endemic issues like racial and gender bias a facade to avoid the deeper DEI work where an organization could say, well, we've structured this fund to support Black founders, but inside their organization, they're not very diverse. It's not equitable and it's not inclusive. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think you answered your own question. Exactly. That's true. Are people putting out the statement and nothing happening internally? giving money, but not changing their own behaviors, Uh, giving money to diversity efforts, but the person that you gave or the company you gave the money to is a startup that gets $50 million and both the founders are two white men. So, but we gave it to it for a diversity effort. So you're absolutely right. Uh, You have to look at what's happening underneath and hold companies accountable. Yeah, and even when you look at women, Women fare poorly in comparison to men when fundraising. But then when you start to break it down by, by gender and then racial or ethnic categorization, then the numbers, you know, become more dismal. And even though for Black and, and Latina women, more of them are meeting that million dollar club, which is, you know, women who've raised more than a million. If you look at the the mean average for startup seed round raise, that's two point, you know, that's like 2.1 or 2.5 million for a Latina woman. That's it's 200 K for a black woman. It's 125. The disparity, the drop off is major. Yeah. It's dismal. It's definitely dismal. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you can't just say, well, you know, there's more money out in the ecosystem now that's going towards, you know, diverse funds or things of that nature. But, you have to really start look. You have to look deep at the data. Like, but even though the general number might be growing, but the number is growing for everybody. But the disparity 
is still there. The gap is not really being closed. That's so right. how do we move towards more transformational DEI in the funding ecosystem versus, let's say, transactional? So what we do know is that uh, the the identity of the folks who are running the VCs, it matches and correlates with who they're funding. Pattern matching. Yes. So a few things um, I have seen, I think we have noticed that there have been more VCs who are being run by black and brown people. You have Harlem Venture Capital. We have Arlen, you know, Hamilton out here as well. We have so many more. I think that is one answer Mm -hmm. is many people who look like us starting VCs and making decisions around it. I think the idea now there's more transparency and more tracking of this data because once upon a time, no one was even tracking it. It was kind of like just these private slush funds. I think looking at success rates and defining what does success look like. So is it more successful that the company that's being funded is bringing in quite a bit of money or can success be considered that they're closing some type of disparity gap in a community? that they're actually bringing a service to a community that wouldn't come if it weren't for that organization. So I think that those are some of the things, I mean, even the failures of some of these businesses are just being reported. I don't think once upon a time, the failure of WeWork would have been reported. You know, it would have just been something that went into the dark, but now being able to see, wow, the halo effect isn't really, (laughs) it, it should really be demystified here because there's all this money being given with less scrutiny than somebody who's asking for $200,000, but you're willing to give somebody else millions and give them the space to fail and really little accountability. And let's talk about that scrutiny and the lack of space and grace, right? Because we know that not all founders are evaluated the same and are given the same latitude for failure. Mm-hmm. Some people's failure gets scrutinized much, much more than others. How do we sort of break that where we are giving people the opportunity to fail just like everybody else and not say, ooh, you got a chance and you blew it. But lots of other people got chances and they also blew it. And also they've probably blown it several times because there are founders who failed several times before they actually succeed. So how do you not allow bias to enter into how underrepresented founders get evaluated for their failures versus when other people fail? I think it goes back to what are we defining as success? When we're saying that somebody's successful, does it mean that oh, you knocked it out of the park the first time? Or was it, to your point, the fifth time? Because it's much more invisible when one of us or a woman or somebody fails versus other folks who this is their fifth time, sixth time, even if they were doing it in their uh, in, with inherited wealth, which we don't necessarily get. I think that even starts, uh, it starts certainly before even a pitch stage because it's whose idea is even worthy to make it that far. Mm-hmm. And then once you get to the pitch stage, it's also about what's required to be able to show that your idea is viable. Is it that I have to have perfect grammar? I can't have one word misspelled. 
Because if my one word in something, a deck or something is misspelled, now all of a sudden it calls into question my complete competence and a, a, and a skill set. Whereas if it's somebody else, oh, no one's like, it was just a, an error or mistake. We're, we're not actually calling into question their full out competence and knowledge. So I think there's also this idea of having clear objective rubrics of how we're weighing people and their ability to be successful. But defining success is going to be super important. And also, what are we doing to ready people to get to a certain stage in a pitch or for funding? And also, what are we doing to ready funders to be able to understand who are you looking at in front of you and what should really be important in this pitch and what should not be? And how do you counter the biases as you're coming up to understand why are you still stuck on that one word that was misspelled mm-hmm. instead of listening to what this person is saying? Why are you paying attention so much to her hair instead of what she's saying? So we're going to have to evoke folks being more self-critical so they can actually be more prepared to be objective. I'm so happy that you said that because that's something I've been really focusing on because when it comes to women you know that they get asked certain questions like preventive type questions versus men who get asked promotion type questions and the need to really prepare female founders for those questions so that they can learn how to navigate them and not have those type of questions knock them off kilter and to be able to pivot back to what's important which is showing that investor why they are a good idea and why they are deserving of investment and showing them their past performance and why they can make them money if they invest in them. And I think that type of training and readiness is really important because we saw that play out a few weeks ago on the Hill with the confirmation hearings for the nominee for the Supreme Court. And she must have prepared a lot to deal with those types of questioning. And even then it was hard, but you can tell there was a lot of preparation that went into that. And how do we prepare women to withstand that type of scrutiny? And it's beyond scrutiny. Sometimes it's just foolery (laughs) that gets thrown at you, but to not let it knock you off your, your course and so that you can stay true to what you're there to do. Yeah. I I mean, I think so many of us were just traumatized watching that, reliving our own lived experiences, um, and of course, our empathy for her. But I think the other part is by the time that she got there, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, by the time she got there, she'd already been tried and tested. I mean, this woman- Several times. This was not her first judge. time. Yeah, this was another clip. Getting of course, confirmed. Of course, it's on a national stage and the foolery, as he said, was just so much more visible in the endurance of that. Um, so I take two, you know, two perspectives of this. One is we're already women, black women, um, people of color. We are already in an endurance race just by fact of our birth and our identity. We're constantly Um, carrying this additional burden of what could happen to us any moment in terms of existing in uncertainty and risk any moment um, to the point of our well-being. So sometimes I think about, gosh, but why should we have to have this elevated self-containment that's actually restricting who we really are? Damn near perfection. 
and oh even that still it gets is just perfectionism, um, performance, toxic productivity, these things that we have in spades. So oftentimes I think about what do we need to do for our own wellness? And that's one thing. The other one is for the world. I mean, that was the win in that was that it was on a a global stage so that the foolishness could be there and folks could see all of what we do deal with. So really, my bigger question is we need to have a much more humane workplace where people are accountable for treating folks humanely. And there needs to be greater scrutiny in terms of how you're treating somebody who may not be in your ecosystem. They don't look like your wife and your daughter. Now, for many of us, in order for us to survive, we are constantly having to code switch, assimilate, cover. So this is something in terms of when you think about our emotional intelligence and what it takes, it's almost by default. But for other folks to need to stretch themselves and hold themselves and be held accountable about why you're not treating somebody in front of you as humanely as you would a colleague who looks like you. That's really where the rubber needs to meet the road in terms of why there's this differentiated approach. And we've got to get away from this. So one of my issues about diversity, equity, inclusion work is that it's so white centered. So we got to get away from the language around saying, oh, but it's someone's bias or unconscious or implicit bias. Nobody cares if you're unconscious or implicit, you know, it's implicit. You need to know the impact you're having on people and be accountable for that impact, whether you knew or not. You need to be accountable for the impact that you have. When we're talking about things like aggressions and discrimination and harassment, and we're calling it a microaggression, there's nothing micro about it for anybody who's on the receiving end. So even all this language we use that gives people almost a pass or normalizes violent behavior in the workplace, that has to stop. So there's a lot of retooling that needs to happen because a lot of these efforts have been centered on giving passes, being compassionate and empathetic towards harm that's being done versus having accountability. I agree. The accountability factor is is major. And until there is accountability and justice, <laughs> I was recently looking at an article, someone shared an article on LinkedIn, but it was talking about the, the allegations and the case being brought against um, Elon Musk and Tesla. And yes, bias, inequalities, and, and, and all of these things happen in organizations, but we should never accept that as well, it happens. That's not a great response. People need to be held accountable. I said, well, let's see what the outcome of the case is. And hopefully accountability and justice for those who have been wrong is applied. But we also know that accountability and justice is not applied. That's equitably. right. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. And even in going through these um steps to determine what happened and is it something worthy of punishment or uh, dues being paid on what happened. We even know that that itself is, um, is misaligned. So when folks say, well, they were found not guilty or, well, it wasn't illegal. 
And you're like, well, once upon a time, terrible was, things were in this country. And still are in this country. This, yes, this is reality and morality are very, very different things. This is your standard. You know, this is what you, you have to ask. This is your standard. Um, so the idea of um, of that even of itself and being able to say, well, you know what? Once upon a time, it was actually legal for women not to be able to own property. Once upon a time, it was legal to for own people, people to own other people. <laughs> yes, for for um, slavery, I was like, so is, is this our standard or is our goal to be better? You know, or is it about did I get caught and did I tiptoe well enough to still be able to imp, um, impose harm? I want to go back to something we talked about earlier, flipping my mind at the moment. I think we had talked about, let's see. As we start to wrap up this conversation, Iko, how do we keep the momentum going? It's been two years post 2020. I get the feeling that some of the enthusiasm is waning. How do we keep DEI as a topic at the top of the agenda as something that never needs to slip to the bottom and constantly needs to be visible and something that we are constantly working on even though it might no longer be the flavor of the month it's not the thing that's on everybody's lips but it's work that needs to continue how do we keep that momentum going so michelle i do think the only way this work is going to be sustained and people continue to recognize the importance of it is that it that leadership competencies are actually anchored into it and that accountability happening. When you hear somebody saying, well, my leadership's not ready to have this conversation and you've got to ask, well, wait, are these the leaders that you should be having? They're not able to lean into courageous conversations. They're not willing to self-interrogate. They're not willing to be a better version of themselves. They're not willing to want to open their eyes to make this workplace one that is more equitable then how could they be fit to lead an organization? It has got to be embedded in leadership competencies from everything like emotional intelligence, self-awareness, ability to have a learner mindset. All of these things need to be in there. If DEI is put as this divorced and separate thing over here, it won't last. It is going to fall off the budget, as you were mentioning earlier, but it has got to be inculcated as part of roles and responsibilities and a part of leadership competence, and a part of performance management, incentive, as well as demotion and termination. Ah, I remember now what I wanted to pivot back to. We talked about, you know, lots, when we hear the DEI conversation now, especially as it relates to companies and corporates and organizations, the bottom line of DEI, oh, well, DEI is good because it's good for business. But what if, <laughs> so now it's, it's just a driver of the bottom line. Like, what are your concerns about that framing for DEI and, and the message that that is sending? I mean, talk about transactional, right? 
<laughs> so I, I never go with the business case about something that's correlated with m- money or monetization, because now your why is already kind of pretty messed up. And I do think that now with the influx of different generations who have different expectations of the workplace in terms of we looked at the numbers around the great resignation and the number one reason that people let were are leaving over 10 times more than the, um, the latter reasons was toxic workplace culture. And the way that we define toxic workplace culture in that study was uh, being uh, feelings of disrespect, unethical behavior, and dismissal of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives or efforts. So great (laughs) if you want to actually uh, not invest in, but the, the employees of today are activists. And they expect a certain way for their leaders to show up as well as for their workplace to be run. And so the idea is the standard has to change also when the employees are demanding more and your consumers. Like there's a different kind of social accountability now that we have social media. Mm-hmm. So even who you're being held accountable by doesn't look like necessarily people in the seats, but we do know the impact is there. So it's even about being a viable organization. It's even about being a sustainable organization. And what does a workforce look like now? <laughs> it does not look like it used to be. And people have expectations of how they should be treated. Women, yes. people of color. Right. So is employee activism, is that the key to sustainability of these initiatives? Employees Definitely. continuing to keep engaged. But well, what about the... Final question, what about the risk of, of burnout, of constantly being an activist? Yeah, I think that there's one part about, you know, what are the boundaries we have as individuals? So I think that part of this is what you're seeing, like, is the great resignation. I don't have time to be here to educate everybody and to fight everyone who is not trying to learn and in a company that's not trying to change. I'll leave and go somewhere else. So people are definitely making a choice to feel like, you know, I don't need to run the ERG for free. I can go to this company up the street that's going to treat me differently. And we also know about the number of businesses that have been opened during COVID and most of them by Black women. And me and you both, I think we could guess some of those narratives and stories around it in terms of saying, if I'm going to work this hard at a place that's treating me like this, I don't need to do that. I can do it on my own terms and do quite well. So I think that that burnout is part of the reason people, employee activists, people are leaving and saying, I can do better somewhere else. But if all the employee activists leave, who keeps the fire burning? Well, I think that the other part is, I mean, one, is that for us to be, you know, is is it for us to be concerned? I think it's the company needs to be concerned about who's going to be here. Do you want a lot of folks who are, Quiet and silent. That's not how you get innovation. You want people who have the same agree, agree with uh, the way things have always been. Or do you want people with a little fire in their belly who's going to speak the truth and who's going to keep you attuned to expectations of society in terms of equity, in terms of, you know, having the best talent? Talent pool looks a lot different now. I agree. Aiko, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. To learn more about Aiko, visit her website at rearcoaching.net. 
Follow her on Facebook at Rare Coach, on Instagram at Rare underscore Coach, and follow her on LinkedIn, Aiko Bethea. Aiko, thanks for stopping by the WTF podcast. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, leave a rating, a review, download, or share this episode. Join us next Friday for a new episode on the Alive Podcast Network. And subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and more to get notified when new episodes drop. If you'd like to be a guest or sponsor the podcast, send an email to where's the funding at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at where's the funding underscore podcast and follow me, your host, Michelle J. McKenzie on LinkedIn. Join us next Friday for the next episode.